Yeah, I know we don't really need like to induce stress that much. Uh, honestly, there's there's plenty of that out there for us, you know. And I think like you know that and that's kind of a, a strategy to manage acute stress. And I, I think if you really feel like there's chronic stress, again, go back to the physiology. You know, you look at the circadian stuff, the sleep stuff. You know, how are you training? How are you moving your body? You know, it's really important. There's lots of endorphins that come from just exercising. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. True story. Over the past week, I've been stopped by over six women, moms specifically, at grocery stores, on playgrounds, and at women's circles, And each of them asked me in their own way, how was I able to exude so much energy, energy that they could feel? And each of these wonderful women that I met followed up by sharing that they felt burned out and tired and were looking for answers. Now, my immediate response was that I devote my entire life outside of being a mama to my son, Kingston, to helping women feel their very best by optimizing their hormones and their metabolism, and that I live these principles every single day, all day long, because I want to feel my best too. Now, I know you may be hearing this and you are feeling a little bit burned out or maybe a lot burned out. I also know that deep in my heart that you are doing the very best you can. And you are also doing so very much because there are always things and obligations that need to be tended to. It seems to never stop. And honestly, I rarely met women who shared that it ever did, right? Even grandmothers, right? No woman has ever said, you know, at some point it slows down. (laughs) You know, we are holding the container for so many people day in and day out. And I have learned that we've got to commit to ourselves like we commit to everything else. And what I have also learned is that there is room to commit to our health needs and desires, and we can still do all the other things. What I've learned about being a mom and continuing to launch bigger and bigger things in my business and life, there seems to always be enough time to make it all work, including the healthy lifestyle habits, especially when they are non-negotiable. And one of my commitments to you is that I bring you guest experts and solo episodes that are designed to offer you high value that you can take home and start implementing immediately, like today. And today's guest is going to deliver exactly that. Today is fully dedicated to the habits that are going to move the needle in harnessing more mitochondrial energy, better recovery from your crazy long days, and a path towards many years of feeling resourced and firing on all cylinders, because you freaking deserve to feel that way. Now, my amazing guest and fellow mama, Kristen Holmes, knows how to optimize human performance, and we're going to be talking about how to do that specifically for women. Now, as a vice president of performance of science at WHOOP, Kristen drives thought leadership by engaging with industry-leading researchers and partners to understand individual and team biometric and performance data across high-stakes verticals to drive product innovation, strategy, and coaching. Kristen blends her academic and applied background in athletics, coaching, performance technology, psychology, and exercise physiology to drive research, partnership, and product development initiatives to strengthen WHOOP as a leader in human performance. Kristen's research focuses on the temporal organization of circadian influences and their effect on physiological and psychological resilience. She was a three-times All-American, two-times Big Ten Athlete of the Year at University of Iowa, 
competing in both field hockey and basketball. And she is a seven-year member of the U.S. National Field Hockey Team and one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history, having won 12 league titles in 13 seasons as a national championship at Princeton University. I cannot tell you how exciting it is to have Kristen here on the show because she literally knows how the body works and how to get the most out of our bodies no matter what we have going on. So I welcome Kristen to the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast. Kristen, girl, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good. Thank you for having me on. You are just a shining light. Oh, I am so excited. My husband was in here just a second ago and I was like, do you know who I'm interviewing right now? Because I just need you to know. Because he's the one who put me on to Whoopstrap like two years ago. And more. So, and honestly, there were days where I was like, I don't want to look. I don't want to look because my sleep was so bad. I was up so many times with my toddler. I do not even, I only want to look at my sleep score, but we, it is, we are a whoop, whoop family, a whoop strap family. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that, but most importantly, we're going to be talking about like, how do we maintain our energy? How do we maintain resilience? How do we kind of gauge, you know, our recovery every single day? Like what are the things, what are the levers that matter most for us preserving our energy? But before we get into all of that, I've got so many questions. I would love for you to just start off and just share kind of what was that defining moment or that time where you were like, this is what I want to do. This is the work I'm meant to do in this world. This is how I'm going to transform the way people take care of themselves. And then you went and you did it, right? Yeah. I mean, I've always studied psychology and physiology and and, um, and I was basically taking a lot of those principles and applying them in high performance environments. So I was a uh, I was a collegiate coach and an international coach. And I knew that it was always way more than just the X's and O's. Of course, to coach that level, you have to be very proficient in the technical aspects of the sport. You have to be very proficient in the tactical aspects of the sport. But you, you really need to have a foundation for and, and understand the psychological components that really drive our ability to show up and be our best selves, you know, for practice and for, you know, I was working with student athletes, so and, and young women. And, you know, it's more than just about the sport and the X's and O's. It's really about building kind of a, a comprehensive framework uh, to help them understand understand what are the variables, both the physiological and psychological, that are going to impact or influence their ability to show up as the best best version of themselves. You know, so that's really being able to understand, okay, what, what levers do I pull to maximize attentional capacity, motivation, effective effort, energy production, and building a framework so they understood, hey, I can make this choice and this is going to upgrade or this is going to downgrade. And I know life isn't that binary, but when it comes down to certain foundational behaviors like sleep and fueling, overfueling, underfueling, obviously problematic, right? There's a sweet spot for all of this. It gives us a foundation to kind of show up and be able to be uh, the best version of ourselves. So I really spent my entire career building a framework for my student athletes. And I, and I coached, I taught a class at Princeton University as well aptly named performance optimization. So I was working with students as well as student athletes um, and really trying to help folks understand what are these psychophysiological interactions and what is the taxonomy? You know, if we need to think about, I want to manage my energy as effectively as possible and be able to kind of show up when it matters the most, how do I need to live? What are those behaviors? And that's really been the kind of framework for all of the research that I've been doing over the course of the last Last, you know, six years has been really trying to wrestle the ground. What is this taxonomy? What behaviors are the most predictive of physiological and psychological functioning? And uh, we can talk more about some of that research today. 
Let's do that. Let's let's do that. You know, I, as I was kind of queuing you up for my audience, and I felt like you already knew the, my amazing ladies, my amazing community, and and these are women who, <laughs> yeah, they're incredible. They are holding it together. They are doing all the things. They got the biggest to do list, and what they're really craving is they just want the energy to be able to do the things, not only that they love, but also that they are, you know, to serve their community, to serve the people that matter most to them. But not going to lie, feeling a bit depleted, at times feeling run down, and maybe aren't very clear on what exactly are those levers that we have got to commit to, that we've got to double down on, especially in the kind of that interception, that transition of perimenopause, where hormones are not not necessarily predictable anymore and are definitely playing a role in, in, in how we are feeling day in and day out. Yeah, I mean... Hormone, understanding hormones, I think is really important, you know, and, and I think about it, you know, I think about the sleep and circadian hormones, right? So, you know, melatonin and cortisol, you want your melatonin signal and your cortisol signals to be as strong as humanly possible, right? And there's some behaviors that are associated with uh, strong melatonin signal and strong cortisol signaling. And when those aren't firing, energy is a problem, right? So if we are not getting that bolus of cortisol in the morning, fatigue, anxiety, depression, right? So one of the ways to ensure for that that cortisol is of course, to get the requisite night's sleep. So I know, uh, you know, I've got two kids. I got a PhD candidate. I've I've got a full-time job. I totally get it. Like I'm, I've got lots of stuff going on. I understand. So I just want to lay that out there just because I don't want to sound tone deaf, right? As I talk about some of these things, because I have to manage all of this as well in terms of figuring out, yeah, how how am I going to actually spend the time in bed that I need to? Kristen, you are doing the most. (laughs) It is absolutely not a competition. We're all, it is all relative. We're all doing a ton of shit. But I I will say that, you know, my life's work has really been about, okay, I want to be able to do a lot of things and I want to be able to do it at high quality. And what, what are the levers that I need to pull? So morning light, is absolutely central, right? So we think about kind of these hormones, right? And getting that signaling going, we need to get that bolus of light within 20 minutes of waking up. When we've got kids that can be tough, but get their little asses outside <laughs> if you can and get that sunshine. They need the sunshine too, right? And, and I think, you know, do a five minute nature walk in the yard when your dog's running around, you know, eat, eat your breakfast outside if you can, um, but try to get yourself and your family outside if at all possible. And I know the morning routine can be really chaotic, but to the degree that you can organize your, your morning routine. So you just get outside in the, in the natural light for five minutes, it will go a long, long way toward your hormone health. The other piece to that is really try to restrict light after the sun goes down. And I know some of these behaviors sound a little bit hard, (laughs) but they are democratically available, right? That sunlight, that natural light's available to all of us. And I think restricting light is really important for children and teenagers and adults. It's very, very important. We we haven't adapted to blue light. So when we talk about the melatonin signaling, so cortisol is that wakefulness, the kind of book in the day. Melatonin is the kind of darkness hormone that's going to make us feel sleepy. So if we're not restricting light, our melatonin signal will not be as strong. Okay, so we suppress that melatonin signal and we press that melatonin signal. That means that we're likely not going to get into these deeper stages of sleep at night. So that 2 a.m. wake up is a product of a weaker cortisol and melatonin signaling. So 
cortisol. So back to cortisol, because I think a lot of women, especially in that perimenopause, are waking up at 2 and 3 3 a.m. So what happens with cortisol is you end up, um, there is a, it will start to rise at around 2 or 3 a.m. So if we have not managed our stress throughout the day, we already have, imagine, you know, your gas tank of cortisol, and it's totally chock full and that lots of stress right throughout the day. And it's not kind of managed proactively. That ends up kind of going, you know, getting into your nighttime, right into your sleep. And what happens is you've already got a lot of cortisol. So you get that little, little bolus of cortisol, that little rise. And what it does is it wakes you up and you're awake. So if you are waking up around two or three, a lot of it, you can probably trace it back to the light, the morning and, and, or not enough evening restriction of light and stress management throughout the day. So those are kind of three behaviors that will impact the quality of your sleep at night. And if you do them consistently and, you know, you get that light and your strict light and lead up to bed and you manage stress proactively throughout the day, uh, you'll be uh, much better um, in terms of your sleep at night. Awesome. Now I want to talk a little bit about restricting light in the evening because I know people are wondering, so, you know, is that... Like I always think like when I say cut down alcohol, they're like, is that one glass of wine? Is that two glasses of wine? What does that even mean? So like yeah, for us in our house, we have specific lighting. We have lighting that drops. Like it, we have dim lights. I am like a vampire at night. If I if there is harsh light in my house after a certain hour, I'm just like, ah! Like it is just intense for me. And so our bathroom lighting, bedroom lights, uh, Kingston just has a little teeny little, little nightlight that he might, this is my toddler. You know, we have blackout curtains in all of the rooms. And so we are really mindful that lights go off, like not, and they're not fully off, but there we have super, super dim light, blue lights cut off, TV lights cut off, no TVs in the bedrooms, obviously. So we're doing a lot of that. I wouldn't, it's not where it's not full dark. We wouldn't be able to see, you know? And so I was curious as to, is there, you know, and obviously right now it's, it's getting, it's getting darker later. Um, you know, cause it's that time of the year, but you know, how, like, how much do we need to go into this realm? Is there a cutoff time for screens? What is, are there, what are the recommendations around that? So people just have a good sense of, okay, this is what I need to really start working towards. Great. Well, before I do that, I'll, I'll tell you the morning protocol first in terms of like specifics. So yeah, so five, the, the brighter it is outside. Um, so within 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes of waking up, you want to get outside a hundred thousand lux of photon energy is really what you're after. So that means if it's bright outside, like good, you know, the sunshine, sun's out, it's not super cloudy, uh, five to 10 minutes will do. If it's really cloudy, you're going to need to spend a little bit more uh, time outside, 15 to 20 minutes, which I know for a morning routine, non-weekend is going to be really challenging. But if you can just do a minimum, uh, minimum effective dose, I guess, um, regardless of over, you know, sky conditions would be about five minutes. In the evening, you want to start restricting light around two hours before you intend to sleep and maybe even three. So basically once the sun goes down, you want to start uh, making sure that you're not exposing yourself to a lot of overhead light. So you want to just really, uh, and I think you've got it right. You know, you just want to be able to safely move around. Um, but you, you really want to try to create, you know, mimic that, you know, kind of what you'd have just with moonlight, <laughs> you know, which I know is 
not a lot of light, but that's really what our system is craving, right? That's what we endogenously, that's what we prefer, right? Is this darkness. And when we talk about melatonin signaling, you know, that's a big piece of it, right? Like our suprachiasmatic nucleus. So the, you know, control center of our brain that's located in the hypothalamus is basically waiting for that dark signal, right? They're anticipating that cue. So if we're in, you know, our you know, our living room and the, you know, there's overhead lights and there's TVs and there's phone screens. And you're basically telling your body that it's time to be awake. And when you're time to be awake, what's the hormone for awakeness? It's cortisol, stress, 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 sympathetic activation, right? We'll talk probably a little bit about the nervous system, but we want to make sure that, you know, leading into bed, we're just really, we're telling our brain, every cell tissue organ in our body, we're telling them that it's time to like chill, it's time to relax. And the only way they know to chill and relax and do their thing is with that darkness signal. So we just got to keep it low. I would even say in children's bedrooms, like even just six lux of light has been shown to interfere with sleep. And I think another note on that, um, there's an excellent paper that came out recently that basically showed any light between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. was enough to disrupt next day dopamine system. So light during that time is actually pro-depressive. So 11 p.m. is kind of that time where you definitely want to be very much asleep by that point. And I think that research kind of helps us back into, all right, what is actually the appropriate time to be sleep, you know, asleep? And it's absolutely by 11 p.m. and certainly probably before that, if we look at some of the other like hunter gatherer kind of literature and um, which I can talk about if you want. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. And yes, you know, for us, there's no nightlight in his room. It's just more the little one when I'm when I'm get, we're reading stories still. Yeah. Then we have a little teeny little light in the room and that's that's it. No, but there's no light because it doesn't work. It, it absolutely like even just getting them to bed. If the light is on, it does. It doesn't work. And so we we have a no, you know, we can hear him, you know, so we, we can go and grab him because he can't see anything either. Poor thing, you know, and so I'm like, we better get in there before he tries to get off that bed. But same thing in our room as well. Like we we just noticed it's really like really, really noticed was that when our son was in our room, which is half the night, I'm not going to pretend like he isn't, is when when there was light disturbances coming through that he was waking up and that we were waking up. And so that that's how we knew that. And, and I think that, you know, maybe when we're really that young, we are just extra more sensitive, like because we just we're new in this world. And so like there was just a little bit of light coming in in certain areas and it hadn't bothered us as adults. At least we didn't think so. But then it was really disrupting our son who was then waking me up. And so as you can see, then we're, you know, so we we have cardboard because we have these beautiful like windows up above our big windows that are just for, so we like put car, car, it's ugly, but like, I was like, how do we cover these things? You know, and so that's, yeah, that's literally, our rooms are fully, completely dark out. And, and he gets much better sleep. We get much better sleep because of it. Anyway, I just wanted to share a little, that little disclaimer of like, we learned the hard way. Like it, it absolutely had a profound impact on him. Definitely wasn't having a profound impact on us. And yeah, I want to talk about, you know, what it means to be in bed and asleep by 11 p.m. for sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I think as a society, we, well, this might sound harsh, but I think we, sometimes we rationalize things. Oh, I did. I was this year. <laughs> uh, in the sense of, you know, it, it, there's one thing to prefer to be awake and in modernity makes it easy for us to be awake, right? We have access to food 24 seven. We have, um, you know, Netflix shows that are just like 
wild and so fun and, and hard not to watch. Um, we like to read at night. We, we like to do things at night. And I think, I think specifically for moms and dads who are grinding all day at work and, you know, they come home and they're fixing dinner and getting their kids to bed. And then finally they're like, I have some me time. And they're like, like an hour. I know. And then like, Oh, I like actually need to go to bed. So I totally understand all of that. So Notwithstanding some of those challenges, I'm just going to tell you what is optimal. So basically, you know, I think folks have preferences, right? So we talk about this notion of chronotype. And I think society, when they talk about chronotype and culture, you know, there, there's this thinking that, you know, we've got people who, you know, bias toward like a 2 a.m., you know, that's like a late chronotype and that's when they want to go to bed. And then, you know, medium might be like midnight. And then other folks, the early like morning larks are more at like 930 or whatever. But when you look at the research on hunter gatherers and like their natural patterns. And then you look at some of the research where they're throwing just normal people like us into Colorado with no artificial lights, like none of the trappings of modern society. All of those folks are falling asleep after 72 hours within about 30 minutes of one another. So I don't think that that really this kind of not that I totally dismiss chronotypes, but I think that the differences in when we feel sleepy are probably not as big as we think. I think they're, they become big because we have artificial lights and we can bypass that signaling, right? Of, of melatonin, we can we can stay, you know, we stay awake. And but but with that comes some very deleterious effects on our health that impact our metabolism, impact our fertility, impact you know, make us you know increase our proneness for cancer. There are serious repercussions, right? And you know, if we think about light just as a concept, it is, you know, I, I think Dr. Samar Hattar, he's a chief section light of, for the NIH, for uh, the chrono, for chronobiology for the NIH. And, you know, he says, take a photon, not a pill. And he says that because, you know, that is how like strong a mediator light is on our system, you know, and, and before you want to, in order to rule out medication, you want to make sure that you're have the correct relationship with light. And that means being in phase with the natural light dark cycle. So life corrects itself pretty quickly if you can create that alignment. But that means making some hard choices, I think. <laughs> hey, one more thing. Did you know that one of the biggest nutrient deficiencies that I see in people, especially women, is a magnesium deficiency? It's because we burn through the super mineral so quickly. Now, this powerful mineral packs a massive punch because magnesium is involved in over 600 reactions in the body. Now, it is your best friend if you need more energy, better sleep, a faster metabolism, improved digestion, and not to mention happier periods. And you can quickly replenish your magnesium levels with my essentially whole magnesium restore supplement made with my favorite form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate. Use promo code PODCAST and get 10% off your entire order at drmarisa.com slash magnesium. Now I'll have the link in the show notes for this episode to make it easy. Go and try it out today. Here's something I know every woman can agree on. Stubborn belly fat can feel like the worst, especially when you've tried everything to lose it. Not to mention belly fat can be dangerous for us too. According to a brand new study, women over 40 who have excessive belly fat are up to 20% more likely to suffer a heart attack. And no surprise, hormones are involved in belly fat production, which is actually good news because we can optimize your hormones and metabolism for a flatter stomach. And that's exactly what I'm offering to you as a free gift today. 
My Belly Slim Down Guide gives you three effective strategies to get rid of belly fat, along with recipes to reduce bloating, balance your blood sugar, and speed up your metabolic furnace to optimize fat burning. So grab the Belly Slim Down Guide with my proven protocols and recommendations and recipes now at drmarisa.com slash slimdown. That's drmarisa.com slash slimdown, and the link will be in the show notes. Yeah, no, it, yeah, exactly. Making some hard choices. I started this year and I've chosen some hard paths in terms of mothering and, and co-sleeping and whatnot. And, I, you know, and so, and obviously my, you know, it, there was a like conflicting priorities. I'm choosing my son over me. And so what I had learned from that is that I just have to be in bed earlier. If I'm going to get the sleep quality that I really need, I've got to be in bed by nine because I know that I'm going to be awakened. It's, I'm, we're still in that place where I'm going to be awakened a couple times in the nighttime. That's just the way it is. It's just, it's just how it's gone in order for me to make it up. But there was a point this year where I was feeling really great because I had been doing this for a while. I was feeling really well resourced and I had joined a couple courses and I was like, you know, I'm doing these like really amazing kind of I what I considered life-giving, like really just up-leveling all the things I was doing. And so I was staying up a little bit later. I was staying up till 1030 or, you know, and a, a month of this or like even less than a month of this, I started noticing, I mean, obviously my recovery scores were not good. I was starting to burn out. I, st- I started to feel like I knew. And, and I knew that the lever that I was pulling, the wrong lever, was the lack of sleep. And even though I was getting out in sunlight in the morning, like I was doing all the things on the back end, to, you know, to bump up that cortisol awakening response, but it just wasn't. It wasn't enough to make up for this, the lack of sleep I was losing, even the hour and a half that I was losing. And it, you got to get real with yourself. And you said, make the hard choices of like, what is really going to serve me in the long run? And it's going to be the sleep piece. And again, the numbers don't lie. Like my whoop was like, oh, 20. I mean, when I was seeing 25%, 24% recoveries, I was like, uh-oh. Like was, it was not looking good. 44, 39, 34, you know, heart rate variability way lower than it should be in the 20s. And that's the beauty of the data that, that, you know, your data, your body kind of probably recognized that you weren't adapting to that lifestyle as well as maybe you perceived that you were adapting. And sometimes we can't, that's what's great about data is you can't always perceive your own declines, physical, mental, emotional. It kind of just happens. That's what's so insidious about it. It just happens really slowly, you know? So it's kind of like blood sugar right? You just have no idea. You don't know, you know? And, and I think that's where it can kind of, you're like, start to see this downward trend in your heart rate variability and, you know, maybe increases in resting heart rate, your respiratory rates may be a little bit higher and you're like, all right, I still feel okay, but you start to see this degradation. And I think that's the great thing about data is you can actually course correct before you start really spiraling, you know, and, and before your system really gets out of whack. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the, what I love about the data, you know, is, is that, um, you know, life, life changes, you know, you have kids, you might go through a divorce or you have, you know, you know, you're just, life changes, you know, and, and the data can just give you a sense of how you're adapting to those changes and where to course correct, you know, what, what pressure points in your life you need to kind of push in order to kind of get yourself back on course. And that was cool to see where you recognize, Hey, I'm actually pulling all these other levers. I'm exercising, you know, feeling really fulfilled professionally and, you know, I'm getting the sunlight and, you know, but I need to spend more time in bed. And there's just no way around that, you know? And, and I think that's, that was cool. There was just no way around that. There was no me, like, you know, metabolically eating, optimizing my blood sugar. There was no way, there was no way around the lack of sleep I was getting in such, I mean, I think a lot of us think we really can get away with it, but we can't. I know. And I think there is, um, 
you know, once your kids kind of get out of that early toddler phase and they're sleeping through the night, you know, then it really becomes, all right, you know, how do I, how can I spend less time in bed? You know, I mean, that's really, and that's where sleep consistency has really emerged as like kind of the canary in the coal mine for mental and physical health resilience. And this is, you know, a a lot of the research that I'm doing right now is looking at mental and physical health resilience and sleep consistency. So really minimizing that sleep-wake variability has merged, emerged as the most predictive behavior of both mental and physical health resilience. So it, we just published a paper in Military Medicine I Can Send looking at sleep, 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 wake time. But I think for, for folks who are thinking, okay, how do I, how do I get my hormones on track? You know, minimizing night to night variability is the path because there's, there's a, a kind of a direct relationship between uh, night to night variability and, um, and, and adiposity, insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. So when you think about it, I, I go like this, cause I'm thinking about the model in my head, but when you look at night to night variability, that is, you know, it's been shown to have it, an enormous impact on metabolism. So, uh, and also night to night variability reduces uh, melatonin production as well. You can also think about it from, you know, uh, reproductive health. You know, that is one of the three top three things that influences fertility and uterine receptivity is the degree to which you are stabilizing your sleep-wake time. So just something for your listeners in terms of like, you know, a core behavior. It's just so... How important. So important. Yeah, I know. I tell everyone, (laughs) but it's hard. It's a hard behavior. And when you're talking about, just so everyone is clear, when she's talking about, you know, sleep sleep variability, it's it's really... It's a lack thereof. We do not want sleep variability. We want consistency across the board. So you are going to bed consistently at 9 p.m. every single night. You're not going to bed at 9 p.m. two nights and then 11 p.m. the other two nights. And then, oh, you're going to push a 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. on Saturday night. It's consistency across the board. Just like you are out in sun, just like you're walking every single day, just like you're taking your supplements, just like you're eating nourishing foods. Sleep has got to be equally as consistent as all of those other things. And I think this is what I call an unpopular truth or an unpopular opinion, because I don't think anyone's trying to hear this, but this is, I just want this to be heard because I need to make sure this is soaking into me, you know, because I can be a little inconsistent. And so this is probably, if I'm walking away with anything today, it's this. Yeah. And and I think, you know, folks can, there have been some studies that show there's a really, a great study uh, done on firefighters who obviously have the most, you know, egregious, and I'm sure there's some folks on your, on your, who listen to your podcast uh, who are shift workers. And what was cool about this study, it was a feasibility study looking at time-restricted eating. And this is one of the other, you just listed, you know, uh, the three other circadian kind of behaviors are eating windows is kind of another kind of anchoring circadian behavior in the sense that we want to make sure that we're consolidating all of our calories in a single window. So basically this study looked at firefighters who are, have all these crazy schedules and they told, they asked the experimental group to just pick a window that they could stick to. It was either eight hours, 10 hours, or 12 hours. So stick, uh, find a feeding window that you can stick to. And the control group, they could do whatever they want, but both groups got Mediterranean diet. So it's hard to parse out like the effects of the Mediterranean diet. So in that regard, it wasn't a perfectly designed study, but the feeding window folks, the individuals who consolidate, you know, so number one feasibility, they were able to, the firefighters were able to adhere to one of these three time restricted time eating windows. And those uh, the time-restricted groups showed more uh, better metabolic outcomes than the group who just did the Mediterranean diet without the feeding window. So what I'm saying is that for folks who can't stabilize their sleep-wake time, 
i.e. get really good sleep consistency, this time-restricted eating could potentially be another lever to offset the effects of an unstable wake time, sleep-wake time. So that was really cool to see. The, another factor that can kind of, you know, that's really important is exercise, you know, clearly, you know, in terms of our, the impact on, on our met, uh, metabolism. It's amazing. I, I, well, I also think of exercising as energy signaling. Yes. You know, in a way of creating more energy, it's telling your body that you want more energy. I want to go back to the intermittent fasting piece because one of the things I talk a lot about here on the show, I know I'm, I'm a recovering stressaholic. You know, and I am not even a recovered type A person, I do, but I am a recovered stressaholic and I can see myself start to veer in that, you know, and I know how to, again, what had happened to me in, in February, March. And I was like, oh, oh, I know, I know this pattern. I kind of dressed it up. I glittered it up with like, ooh, my life's purpose. I'm like, I've been glittering it up with that forever. And so I could see the things and I was like, you need to pull this back. You need to do the things that you know to do consistently to get yourself back to a good place. But one of the things that I, I talk to about women is having a, a circadian-based eating window. So 12-12, even if they're high, high stress, you know, they are feeling high burnout, that I still feel that that consistent 12-hour window is a pretty safe window for us to operate in, you know, in order to supporting our bodies and supporting our metabolism without stressing our body yep. even more. So I wanted to know if where you landed on that. I could not agree more. And yeah, and just from a, a semantics, you know, intermittent fasting, I think, uh, you know, and you see a lot of this on social media, there's intermittent fasting and time restricted eating are, are kind of two different things. And I think the way you're talking about it is, is perfect in that time restricted eating isn't about calorie restriction. It is about a consolidated eating window, right? Where intermittent fasting kind of implies that you're restricting calories in some way. So I couldn't agree more. I think for women who are going through perimenopause or, you know, just uh, I think women who have a, a, a naturally occurring cycle, there are going to be moments in that cycle that longer fasting periods are going to have a deleterious effect on your hormones, on your energy levels. And I, you know, personally, I'm not a doctor. You are, so you can confirm this. I would definitely not recommend that. I think the 12-12 is really safe. And most Americans are actually eating over the course of a 15-hour window. Right. And, you know, as we, you know, both know, you know, uh, digestion is a is a parasympathetic activity. Right. So when we're asking our body to digest food, which is very expensive, it takes a lot of effort to digest. We're basically diverting all of the resources away from rejuvenation and recovery and all the things that need to be happening cellularly to get us ready for the next day. So we really want to make sure that we're being super thoughtful, that all of our calories are kind of in this you know, 12 hour, 10 or 12 hour period. And that we're really making sure that we're, you know, kind of um, segmenting out our protein over the course of the day as well. Um, and we want to make sure, you know, our breakfast and lunch are kind of our most robust nutrient dense um, meals, because that's when we're, we're metabolically most primed to, uh, you know, to, to use those, use it and use that, you know, use those, you know, convert those nutrients. So yeah, I think like from a, in terms of principle, I think that's dead on. I, I would say that um, we see at population level data, we're actually about to launch a huge time-restricted eating, the largest study ever done. <laughs> so hopefully anyone on Whoop can participate. So you'll be getting a little prompt about that. I know I'm like super excited, but I think what's in, important about time-restricted eating is that you end, so your final calorie is two to three hours before you intend to sleep. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yes, yes, yes. My, my audience is like, oh, girl, she, that's all she talks about. Yeah, and so <laughs> I always say three hours. I like three hours. And I like, I like, especially women, we are, especially depending on parts of our cycle where we're more insulin resistant. Obviously, we are more insulin resistant in the evening. I like people to, and especially that, gosh, by the time most of us are in our mid to late 40s, we have at least one marker of metabolic dysfunction. I am very concerned about what's going on with women, especially as, as we head into perimenopause and menopause. And so one of my big recommendations is three hours before heading to bed, the last bite of food. And if you can roll that back, you know, six, our cutoff here in our house is 6 p.m. So we, everyone, everybody's done. And then we go for a walk as a family afterwards. Then we get, then it's bedtime routine after we get back from our walk. And so, I mean, the evening walk on insulin, uh, you know, there's been lots of just, it's incredible. Uh, I think the, the default maybe thinking is like, oh, after you eat, you know, you just sit, but like, that's like energy, you know, like that's the time to kind of get a, you know, get out and about and, and socialize, get that last like moment of activity before you actually, you know, really, you know, settle down for the night. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's connection, A to digestion. It's an easy walk, you know, where it's it maybe, maybe you are catching the sunset. I don't know. I mean, like, that would be optimal. Whatever that may be. Yeah, optimal. And to me, it's just such a wonderful, again, we're trying to really cultivate these habits and this legacy for our son because we, we want these to be things that he grows up in. Like he gets time, obviously he's getting time with us either way, but it's outside and we're moving and it's really lovely and it's very sweet. And so, and it's just a part of like, we, we eat, we finish our dinner, we do our thing, we do our walk, and then we move into bath time or whatever thing we're doing. So, um, and that just really gives us that. And then everyone goes to bed, even him goes to bed with pretty much fully digested. And because I know that, you know, when we are, we're messing with blood sugar, heading into our sleep routine, that it absolutely can have a profound impact on melatonin and really help, you know, affect our, our deep restful sleep as well. So that's something I'm concerned about. Like, is blood sugar playing a role here when, when your sleep is being disrupted? Yeah. I mean, I think mechanistically, there's no question, you know, that there's going to be an impact when you're having to digest food, you know, you're basically your heart rate has, is going to have to go up. Right. And when your heart rate goes up, it's going to pull you out. And and you might see this when you look at stress monitor on whoop, right? Like when you kind of look, move your hand over your sleep, you know, those little spikes are basically kind of heart rate spikes. So, you know, the more digestion is going to be stressful, right? So the more kind of stress you're putting on during sleep, you know, the more that's going to be reflected in your heart rate. And when your heart rate is up, uh, when it should be down, that means you're not going to be getting into that deeper stage of sleep. So you're going to end up with more light sleep when you're digesting food, uh, when you know, when you drank alcohol. So yeah, so lots of different types of behaviors are going to impact, um, you know, what's happening during sleep for sure. And your ability to get into these deeper restorative stages of sleep. I do want to bring up alcohol because I know you guys had just, I know Whoop just, really, I, and I've been knowing. We've seen numbers. Actually, one of the reasons why I decided to completely shelve alcohol entirely this entire year was we were in Hawaii and I had had, I had one Mai Tai. You know, again, we were eating dinner by six and it was probably this, maybe the second drink I had this year. One, I had two drinks this year. And um, I was wearing all the devices. <laughs> I was wearing the continuous glucose monitor. I was wearing the seat, you know, I was wearing all the things, the Whoop strap. And um, I was tracking my heart rate variability. I was tracking everything throughout the nighttime. And sure enough, you know, even though I got, I supposedly got good sleep, like we went to bed early, my husband, we, we were tanked the next day. It was so, I mean, it, the numbers, again, the numbers do not lie. And even though I didn't feel super off, I knew that my numbers were significantly off. And that was just it. I remember sitting on the beach with my son and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with this for the rest of the year. 
and I'll reevaluate later at the end of the year. And I just love that I made the decision, but I was able to really kind of double down on that decision based on the data that I was looking at. And I know you guys have a lot of data on this. <laughs> we really do. And it I'm not the only one. Yeah. And there, there's no fancy statistics required to like, is very clear that alcohol has a a, a very negative effect on um, all of, of all the markers. All of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, even though it's of course a sedative, so folks feel like, oh, I get into the deeper stages of sleep, but you know, when you look at sleep, you know, people are in very, very light sleep. And just because you're passed out doesn't mean you're actually getting, you know, good sleep. And, and when you don't get into this deeper, deeper stage of sleep, you don't release human growth hormone, like, you know, all the magic that happens hormonally over the course of sleep, you're really depriving yourself when, when you're digesting and when you're uh, metabolize, having to metabolize alcohol. So you're going to definitely see a tank in your recovery and, uh, and, and a lot of light, you know, crappy sleep, <laughs> not to mention like, you know, feeling pretty, you know, less, less capacity tomorrow. I just wanted to just have you share on that as well, because I know that this is very much something nobody wants to hear, but we, we just need to be hearing it more and more from everywhere. And I don't mind throwing myself into the bus personally, you know, in getting people to move in that direction. The other thing I wanted to speak into is resilience. I know this is where you really shine in and talking specifically about the autonomic nervous system and you know, what are some of the, I mean, sleep, obviously consistent. If we walked away from anything today, everybody is consistent sleep every single day. This is a major lever for mood support, for mental health support, for stress support, for energy and mitochondrial support. But let's, you know, let's just talk a little bit about throughout the day. I mean, I, I now, now that we've got the, the stress monitor, luckily it's, I'm not seeing big numbers unless I'm doing big time workouts. So that makes me really happy. But I know that that wasn't back in the day. Like I would have probably seen this thing going off the Richter scale all the time. What have been some of the biggest levers that you have seen that will move the needle in helping us reduce the amount of stress, you know, that we're experiencing throughout the day so that we are feeling like we, you know, we feel less anxiousness, we feel less overwhelmed, we feel less run down. It's kind of the, the feel I get from so many people. I just, I just don't have it in me. So definitely fixing the circadian rhythms first, right? That's our foundation, right? So, you know, and when we talk about, hey, it's, it's, if we want to, you know, fix our sleep, we have to fix our circadian rhythms first. If we want to fix our reproductive health, we got to fix our circadian rhythms first. Like, you know, you, you look at all that is the place to start. So really do everything you can to just test pulling those levers out uh, the best that you can. The other piece that's really important, um, and we talked about the the role of cortisol and its its role during our wakefulness and so important, right? But we want it, we want to make sure that it doesn't wake us up at night. And, and a lot of that is how we're dealing and managing stress, dealing with and managing stress throughout the day. So I always said, you know, I used to say this with my student athletes, and this is what I practice as an athlete is, you know, really starting to building the skill of identifying stress and then building in many moments of rest proactively throughout the day. Because what you don't want to have happen is you don't want to have stress accumulate throughout the day to the point where you get to you know, 20 minutes before you go to bed and you're just a stress ball, right? And coming down, even if you can get yourself to a place where you come down from that, it will invariably rear its head at that 2, 3 a.m. and wake you up. Or you'll end up having, you know, again, when you look at stress monitor, you can see those heart rate fluctuations. If you're not managing stress, invariably your heart rate is going to be elevated during your sleep, which is going to 
uh, make for a more uh, fragmented sleep experience, right? Which is going to, again, not yield the restoration or recovery that you need. So you kind of get into this vicious cycle. So managing stress throughout the day and what it, what you can do is, you know, if it was, uh, you know, if you think about it from, you know, high, medium, low, so you can kind of measure the stress. If it was really high, but you're super jazzed about what you're doing, you probably only need, you know, 90 seconds of just some breath work where you're calming, um, you're activating the parasympathetic breath, uh, branch of the nervous system, you're calming your nervous system, bringing your heart rate down, you know, 90 seconds will probably do it. If it was really high stress, but, you know, kind of bad stress where, you know, you're like, okay, you didn't feel good. Maybe it was a argument with a colleague or, you know, whatever it might've been or a disagreement, or you just felt like you didn't have the resources to do what you need to do at that moment. That's going to require a little bit longer of a, of a de-stress. And, you know, that might be, you know, sitting for five minutes and just quieting, doing your best to quiet your mind, or maybe it's just journaling, just writing in a journal, kind of your thoughts and, you know, maybe centering around gratitude, you know, in, in that moment, just being like, all right, like, what am I grateful for right now? I, you know, I don't have the perspective. I feel myself, my heart rate elevated, you know, what can I do to kind of bring myself back? You know, think of a time where someone did, where you received, you know, gratitude, where someone, you know, wrote you this beautiful thank you note. I have like this little box where I have, you know, thank you notes that my student athletes have written me or, you know, really beautiful cards that my kids have sent. And I just kind of open that box and I read it. And sure enough, within minutes, I'm like, I feel so good. So I think that's also a really great tool. But the key skill is basically to, to do that proactively throughout the day. And, you know, even if you're just walking from one meeting to the next, just doing you know, a double inhale followed by an extended exhale, you know, just doing that three or four times can get you back to center. So I think it's stress mitigation throughout the day. So it doesn't accumulate in a negative way is in a really core, core principle for energy management. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. One of the other things I love too, you know, I'm always thinking about sending the brain safety signals that everything is safe in the world. But I love oxytocin for her majestic powers and abilities. And I kind of think that you're probably opening up that, opening up some oxytocin when you're looking at the, the cards. But I love hugging my son or I love sending voice memos to my best friends or calling somebody, you know, just creating connection. I know for women, we're, you know, we head into tend and befriend mode so well. And that can be a really, so I love that. So just being one, identifying, being aware but then, you know what, just preemptively have these things in place because most likely, I always say that this modern day life is not conducive for happy hormones. I know, it really isn't. Our hormones are just like, ah, like what, what am I having to do right now? Like, and they're doing the best they can with what they got in the moment that they're in, but that they, we, they really deserve us to really try to provide as many safety signals as possible. Yeah, I know we don't really need like, to induce stress that much. Uh, honestly, there's, there's plenty of that out there for us, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, and I think like, you know, that, and that's kind of a, a strategy to manage acute stress. And I, I think when you, if you really feel like there's chronic stress, again, go back to the physiology, you know, you look at the circadian stuff, the sleep stuff, you know, how are you training? How are you moving your body? You know, it's really important. There's lots of endorphins that come from just exercising. So getting out and just doing, you know, 20 seconds on 10 seconds off, even if you're just 
jogging for 20 seconds and walking for 10, 10 seconds and then jogging for 10 seconds, just do that six times. And you'll get the shot of, you know, endorphins or, you know, just start to move around, you know, just lift stuff in your house, you know? Um, and you know, there, I think there's movement is really key. And sometimes that is the solution, you know, that it's not maybe sitting and meditating. It's actually going out for like a vigorous walk, you know, and, and burning some energy can also be a strategy to mitigate stress. So exercise as a way to mitigate stress stress is beautiful. And, and I, and I love the idea of like just these little exercise snacks. I don't know who said that. I'm a big exercise snacker. I love to exercise snack. I don't know who invented that, um, but I think it's just such a beautiful way. I'm totally using it. <laughs> okay. Little exercise snacks where you just like, you know, maybe you just, uh, sometimes I'll just literally run up and down my stairs in my house for like, I'm just like, I'm going to do this four, four times, you know, and then, all right, back to Zoom. Um, but just, you know, some burpees, um, just some squats, you know, um, I think. Burpee squats. I do jump, uh, jack squats, jumping jacks. You know, just bust out 20 to 30 of those. Feels so good. But when we talk about, you know, sleep pressure, right? Like exercise, there's a relationship between ATP and adenosine, right? Uh, adenosine is kind of a, a byproduct of ATP. So when we're, you know, exercising, exerting throughout the day, invariably, we're going to end up sleeping better at night. So um, again, you know, we talk about sleep, movement and exercise during the day is just really critical and releases tons of stress. So building that in is, is also a great strategy. A quick question for you regarding exercise in general, because I know that even like women, sometimes again, there's a, we, we do tend to overdo and we as in me, <laughs> I tend to overdo. And so I was curious, you know, based on, you know, obviously the cortisol releasing that's happening in the morning, is there an ideal time for us, particularly as women, to work out? I'd love to know that I'd like to believe I know the answer to that, but I would love for you to speak into it, where the juice is worth the squeeze for us without creating burnout. So there is a circadian component to, to exercise. Um, so it does entrain our, our circadian rhythms. I would say, you know, anytime you can exercise, it probably offsets anything else. Um, so, you know, getting in your exercises is really important. I would say in terms of optimizing if you don't want to uh fall asleep or earlier uh, if you want to just keep maintain when you fall asleep basically the circadian dead zone um, for exercise is like 10 a.m to 3 p.m so basically if you exercise during that window you're not going to affect your sleep at all so it doesn't move around your circadian rhythms at all if you want to um optimize for strength Generally, in the afternoon, our temperature is going to be at the highest, and we're pretty much we're primed to kind of do a strength workout. So, from a performance standpoint, you know, 3:30, 4 p.m., 5, you know, 4:30-ish, 5 p.m. is a great time to work out, talk my strength and endurance. Pretty much, you could do any time. It seems from the literature there might be some benefits in the morning, um, but I wouldn't recommend for women to train fasted. Um, I know that that's kind of been popular, but but that adds when you talk about kind of adding stress on top of stress. I think for women, definitely, you know, in the luteal phase, so um, when we're leading into menses, called out of, um, sorry, at, yeah, out of menses and uh, the ovulation phase. So basically, those two weeks leading into menses and ovulation, we want to definitely. I would not fast because you're already a little bit depleted. Your body's working very, very hard. And that's a time frame where we just want to be like, you know, as kind and gentle to our body as possible. So we don't want to layer stress on top of stress, which training fasted is layering stress on, on top of stress. Good to know. And where I've seen that, like on a continuous glucose monitor, when I have trained in a fasted state, I will see a really big spike. Uh, that's where it'll happen is if I go into a workout, especially a big weight training workout, 
and I haven't had anything to eat, I'll hit a 30 milligrams or plus spike from having, from the liver having to do something about that. It's stressful. Yes, it's stressful. So I just wanted to mention, you'll see that. You can actually see that on a CGM and you'll you'll see it also on your Whoop as well if you're wearing a Whoop strap. So just, just interesting information. I always find, you know, that some of the women I recommend is because cortisol is already where it needs to be. I usually recommend a morning workout, but not a fasted morning workout so that they're taking advantage of the cortisol that they have and they're not ramping it up later on. And this is someone who's dealing with stress already. I'm not trying to drive more stress to the system. And I don't know, that, that's just kind of been some of the research that I've seen, at least in, in my practice, of like, if we can get the workout done unfasted, you can have a little snack, workout, and you take advantage of, especially in perimenopause, where you get that workout done in the morning, you, you kind of start, you wind down in the afternoon. It's interesting. I, you know, I don't, I don't know that there actually is any research to support that, but I, I feel like just understanding what's happening with hormones. And that seems to me like a super logical way to think about exercise prescription and timing. I would say coffee is another consideration. Um, when we talk about kind of circadian things, obviously coffee afternoon after 12 PM could, you know, impact your sleep onset. So you want to make sure that you're avoiding that, but also, um, you, and this is so hard. I am like, I just want to have coffee as soon as I wake up, but I try to delay it 90 minutes. So I allow that natural cortisol to kind of do its thing. I think, especially for women who are already having a lot of these kind of hormone issues and feeling and sleep issues, um, I would absolutely wait to have your first cup of coffee 90 minutes after you wake up. It's so important. I usually wait 60 minutes. I'll do, I'll go 60 minutes. I'll, and I usually drink, I drink a 30 ounce water thing of water. Yeah. So I water is the first thing I do out the gate. And then I wait my 60 minutes and then I'm just like, you know, I just drink all the coffee. That's awesome. And a little, <laughs> a little, I do the water too. And um, in my luteal phase as well, like I put a little salt, a little element. I do element. Yeah. So we, my favorite's raspberry salt. We do raspberry salt, orange salt. I'll do one before, usually I'll do a half in that. And then after my workout, I'll do the other half too. So stuff because I'm still breastfeeding, I lend towards Oh yeah. All the things, girl, all the things. And so <laughs> I love it. You were just, so yeah. So just making sure I'm do not dehydrating. So yeah, those, those things are so, so critical. Oh, this has been the most amazing conversation. Thank you so much. And just real talk, like, you know, if you were wondering and you needed some answers, today was the day. Today is where we hit you with it. <laughs> It was really fun. Yeah. Um, and I just feel so validated. Good. <laughs> I know. I know. You're doing so many things right. And your listeners are so lucky to have you as a source of inspiration and insight. And yeah, you're, uh, yeah, just, it's been fun. I listened to Nikki podcast, the last one, um, an endocrinologist from the UK. She was uh, so good. And yeah. So uh, just what you're bringing to your audience is just, you know, first class. So I feel really grateful. To, to be on today. Thank you. Well, it's been such a pleasure and such an honor. Where would you love us to find you? Where would you love us to, to cue in? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I've been working on my, my dissertation. So <laughs> good. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. When's the finish line? Is it this year? It's, yeah, it's probably the end of the year. I realistically, by the time I get my committee together, it's probably going to be, you know, early, early next year, but yeah, getting, getting close, uh, which is exciting. Yeah. But yeah, um, LinkedIn, so just Kristen Holmes, whoop, um, I should pop up in a, in a search engine. And then uh, Kristen, I'm going to say underscore 
Holmes 2126 is my Instagram handle. And I post a ton of stuff about workouts and research. And I love your Instagram. So I will make sure we have it because I didn't know the handle. I just know it's you, right? I, I couldn't remember what the handle was. So I'll have the handle there. I'll have, I'll have LinkedIn there. I'll have Whoop there if people want to go and check it out. I just, I do love it. I love, especially for women I and men and women, but I mean, I serve, I always say I serve everyone by serving women to have this real-time data that we can make real-time changes is just game changing. We deserve that so that we can, we can just feel our very best. And this is, I mean, I, as a disciplined as I am, as a committed as I am, I will lie to myself. I will, if I don't have the hard data to just tell me what's up. So, and the science is there, you know, and that's, what's exciting is we, we really don't have to guess anymore, you know, about just how our health is trending. And I think that's the exciting opportunity with, with data. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> of course. All right. Thank you. Whoa. So many epic takeaways. But the one that really landed for me today was going to bed consistently every single night and making sure that it's well before 11 p.m. so that my body can do what it needs to recover, right? That deep, restful sleep is so critical. And because I have felt relatively sleep deprived these past couple of years, I know how critical it is to get that much needed eight hours of sleep for myself across the span of my entire night. Now, the other one that was really kind of a standout for me was the clear and unequivocal evidence that alcohol significantly decreases all biomarkers across the board in your body. This is something that I have seen, and it's actually the reason why I decided not to drink alcohol this year. As Kristen said multiple times, the data doesn't lie. The data will always tell you what's up, and it's that very data that helped me to plan my day and fiercely protect my sleep. Now, I also want to quickly mention the wearable device that we are referring to on the show. Outside of the fact that we both wear continuous glucose monitors, the other wearable that I wear and that Kristen is highly involved in is Whoop. Now, as I mentioned briefly, I use Whoop. I've been using Whoop for a couple of years now, and it is a tracking device that you wear on your wrist to track sleep, stress, heart rate variability. It gives you a recovery score, kind of like a body battery, which I find is so helpful to kind of determine what's going on with your day. And it also has a strain number that it gives you, which really dictates how hard you can push that day given your recovery. And what I love about this is that I used to often lie to myself about what I was capable of that day, no matter how I felt. But now that I have this data, it really has helped me optimize so many of my habits and it really demonstrates to me how hard I can push that day and where I need to really ease up on things. And I will tell you that has made such a massive difference in my energy levels and it just how I feel overall and how I show up. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been getting stopped, I think, a lot these days by other women is that I've been really optimizing my energy levels. And I will tell you, I've been so much better about it now that I've got trackable data that I can look at every single day that can really help me get aligned with how I truly want to feel in my body. I am so focused on increasing my energy by honoring not only my menstrual cycle, because right, our energy ebbs and flows with that but also really honoring my circadian rhythm every day and keeping my blood sugar stable and nourishing my body with metabolically nourishing foods. It's why I've devoted so many podcast episodes to those specific topics 
is because I know that those are some of the biggest needle movers that we can leverage to really feel our best. And because I've become so passionate about these major levers, I wanted you to know that I am putting the final touches on my metabolism and hormone reset course. This has been a long time in the making with a 30-day plan to implement with grace. And it takes into account everything that we talked about today and so much more. It's comprehensive. It delivers epic results in real time. And I'll be sharing more details very soon once I am ready to make it available sometime in June. This has been one of my biggest passion projects this year that I cannot wait to get to you. Now, I will have the links to go and check out Kristen Holmes to go just see what she's all about. I mean, this woman is a rock star and she is a researcher, a champion for us, right? So I want you to go check her out. I will also have a link to go and check out Whoop as well in case you're interested in in adding this particular wearable to your daily routine to kind of get a better sense of what's going on with your body and how you can support your body in real time. Again, I hope this episode was as valuable to you as it was to me. If it was, be sure to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please go and rate the show so that more women can tune in to become the CEO of their health.